Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast. My name is Sadie. I'm Stani and happy Black History Month. I love February for this reason. We don't only cover Black women during Black History Month. We obviously cover them throughout the whole year. But it's Mm -hmm. just fun to celebrate Black history. Like, made such an impact on especially, like, American art and culture. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so I just think it's so wonderful to have that month to celebrate, especially. I'm really excited to even learn about who we're talking about. I realized I don't know who the focus of the episode is today yet. Yes. But really excited to dive in. It's because I had two documents. Yes. Yeah, that's (laughs) true, actually. Mm -hmm. I did notice that. I was like, wow, she's really on top of her research for this year because I am seeing information about two women and she only has to cover one. Yeah, I did one person and then I realized I was going through Pinterest or something and I think I found one for someone else and I was like oh maybe I should talk about them and then I read through the whole story and then I was like oh and then I chose so okay regardless I'm very excited Mm -hmm. before we dive into the person that we have the honor of covering did you make any art this week or did you watch any art this week that you were excited about I'm prepping for a photo shoot, so that's been exciting. And we've been talking a lot Mm -hmm. about branding at work, which I'm always a fan of. So that's been on that side. And then I watched Teeth. You remember we did that episode about the science of women in horror? Yeah. And we talked about one of the horror movies where, like, she finds out she has whatever it's called, like, dental. Like, she has teeth in her vagina. Ah, yeah. And so it's this whole thing and it popped up on Amazon and I was like, wait a second, that looks familiar. And then I ended up watching it. Interesting. Definitely (laughs) fits in like the category of movies I've been watching, which guys, I'm so excited to talk about this. We have been long prepping for (laughs) For March. Absolutely. (laughs) So I've been watching a ton of movies like that and it definitely fit perfectly into it. It's a little graph <laughs> that doesn't surprise me <laughs> yeah with so the yeah there was a little bit of ooh, but i knew when to look away <laughs> so that helped but yeah super super weird and definitely fits in the feminist horror fiction spot so it was cool would though you recommend it though i would actually okay i think it's really good, good. i think it will make any man really wince though so watch with caution <laughs> i can only imagine that <laughs> yeah <laughs> like i didn't personally get offended by that because i was like yeah. <laughs> i don't get it i don't know what it. that would be like yeah that's, that's hilarious mm-hmm. honestly sorry men <laughs> yeah. of the world it was really well done though i really feel like I they captured the main character like really well What about you? Did you make or consume any art? As far as consuming art, I am a Sarah J. Mass girly. That's right. You had the book release this week. I haven't been that excited for a new book since I was a child waiting for the seventh Harry Potter book. Mm. I'm being so honest. 
which it was like fun to feel that again. You yeah. Know what I mean? Like the anticipation of a book release. I'm like 200 pages in. So far living up to expectations. I'm like every moment though that I'm like working and or I guess in this moment out podcasting, I'm like, <laughs> could be reading my book. <laughs> you could be. Is it like the book within the throne of glass? No, it's the Crescent City series. Oh, okay. She has a lot. She does. Because there's Akatar, which yes. I know about. And then she also did Throne of Glass, right? Yeah. And I actually okay. even haven't finished the Throne of Glass series. I have two or three more books left in that still. I've read all of her series very out of order and very slowly over the last year. So I guess I'm not a full Sarah J. Masquerly yet, but yeah. I can't help it. I love it so much. So anyone else was anticipating the release i was i went and got it from a bookshop just across from where i live and there's a coffee shop right next door so i like went and got myself a little drink and started was sitting there and this woman came up to me and was just like oh my gosh you got it i did get it and then she was also like and vanderpump rules tonight and i'm like oh yep, you're speaking my <laughs> language like i'm i'm there with you so that's funny i love being a fan of things and it's yeah. always fun to connect with other strangers about that as well love that love that good, so much good week for being a fan i guess as far as like creating art oh if i'm being honest i don't know but i did get an electric guitar for Ooh. yes i did get a new guitar at the end of last year so i've been actually been practicing trying to do yeah stuff with it. so yeah, I've been creating art, making music, trying to become a better guitar player, especially after last month of like women in rock. It has inspired me. I'm like, I want to be a cool rock girly. Yeah. I want to do that. So that's what my Spotify day list was this morning. It was anxious mm. teen rock. Nice. I don't know what made it anxious. And I guess Olivia Rodrigo made it teen. Yeah, that checks out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then I was like, okay. <laughs> that checks out. One other thing that I thought was funny that I just didn't bring up. Did you see the Elmo tweets? Yes, I did. Guys. I did see the Elmo tweets. I know that doesn't really have anything to do with our podcast. But oh my gosh. <laughs> like, it was just like so pure and cute and sad all at the same time. Wait, but for people who don't know what the Elmo yes. tweets are, explain. Yes, so... Almo is on Twitter? Yeah, maybe um, he's always been on Twitter. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. So Almo tweeted, which by the way, his username is just at Almo, which iconic, an icon right there. And he just said, Almo is just checking in. How is everyone doing? And it got so many responses, like from celebrities, verified, like all sorts of things. And people were just like, not great, not doing good. <laughs> Oh, Elmo. People have said Elmo's been trauma dumped on, which yes, fair. And it was just like 18.2 thousand replies. <laughs> 300 million views. So many people expressing how they feel about it. The president tweeted yes. the response after and was like, we need to be there for each other and lift each other up. Guys. Thank you, President Biden. Yes. Almo is an influencer here. <laughs> but then afterwards, like everyone's responding, not good, Almo, or not that great, or <laughs> all these things. Then Almo says, wow, Almo is glad he asked. Almo learned that it's important to ask a friend how they were doing. Almo will check in again soon, friends. Almo loves you. <laughs> and then... So cute. All of the other Sesame Street characters retweeted that and all said something along the lines of, if you need someone else, I'm also here, including I mean, 
Bert, Snuffleupagus, Grover, Oscar the Grouch, and Ernie. This is a really random thing that is now coming into my brain, and then I swear we can get to the topic of the episode. Mm -hmm. But did you ever hear about how Big Bird was supposed to go on the rocket ship that ended up exploding on, like, national TV? No. And it's a good thing that Big Bird didn't, because then to the children of America, they'd have to explain, like... That Big Bird died? Either Big Bird would have to have died or came back to life. Yeah, I think as a general, like, I didn't hear about that before, but I know what you're talking about. And I feel as a general rule, we should just not send childhood TV show characters into space. I think that's a good, (laughs) probably a good rule. Hold on. I actually have to figure out what this is. I might just cut this all out of the episode because is this relevant? No. Yeah, but Sesame Street isn't either. It was the Challenger. Big Bird was supposed to be on the Challenger and that came out. A couple like couple years ago, that was supposed to happen. So then, Big Bird would have died in the Challenger explosion. I don't know what happened that made Big Bird decide not to. But anyways, gosh, so that's just a other the sad fun part is more about Sesame Street. The really sad part is that means that the person inside the suit, yeah, who was not an astronaut, probably nope. unless they would have just put an astronaut in the Big Bird suit. No, really it was Carol Spinney. She's the puppeteer. They invited her to space. Whoa. That would have been really terrifying, actually. Truly. I know it was a thing for a second that billionaires were going to space. That's not on my bucket list. I'm good. I'm I actually so want to stay with- very far away from space. Yeah. I like staying on this planet, actually. Same. Yeah, and I don't want to go in the ocean either. The ocean is genuinely my biggest fear. Yep. I'm going on a cruise. That's great. Yeah, but I I went on a cruise last year and Mm -hmm. I had to ground myself. Yep. But I guess I couldn't because I was literally on the waves. I think it was my parents were pointing out this past week that the Titanic is so much smaller than all of the cruise ships. Mm. And yet, like, we've been cruising. Like, cruises have existed (laughs) for a really long time. Uh So it's okay. I think maybe we figured out the whole boat thing now. Yeah. But I'm not getting in the water. Never. (laughs) It's not happening. Knee deep? Yeah, that's okay. In the ocean. But like submarine? Not a chance. Oh, no. Yeah. What happened? Yeah, I know. That especially. I was like, I remember I had anxiety really bad for two days. (laughs) It's like, that is like my biggest fear. (laughs) Anyway. Anyways, um. <laughs> don't mind us just, yeah, drifting off topic here. <laughs> relevant um, stuff. It feels relevant. Thank you. Anyways, okay, introduce to me. Who are we discussing today? I cannot wait to hear her story. Yes. Okay, so we're talking about Phyllis Wheatley-Peters, and the most, like, common phrase that's used about her is she was considered the first Black or, like, African-American author of a published book of poetry. Oh, cool. Yes. Her story, like trigger warning, is so sad. There's nothing, I couldn't, there's no abuse of any kind or anything, but like she was a slave Mm -hmm. and there's just a lot of racism involved in this. Yeah, it's just a really interesting and weird scenario. Okay, so we actually don't know the date and place of her birth, but they assume that she was born somewhere in 19. 1753 in West Africa, probably what is now Gambia or Senegal, they're assuming. She was sold by a local chief to a visiting trader who took her to Boston and then the British colony of Massachusetts 
on July 11, 1761 on a slave ship called the Phyllis. The vessel was owned by Timothy Fitch and captained by Peter Gwynn. And once they arrived, a wealthy Boston merchant and tailor, John Wheatley, bought her as a slave for his wife, Susanna. Hmm. So she was named after the ship. I, I don't know what. I was just going to say, yeah. I was like, wait a minute. She was named after they just decided to call her the slave ship that brought her in? Yeah. That's, which, yeah, wow. not great. She was only eight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I was imagining like a teenage woman Mm-mm. or a teenage girl. Eight she years old. She was a child. Yeah. So she was eight years old, which there we could go on for days about how wrong this is to first off sell an eight-year-old child and send them away from home. Then second off to buy an eight-year-old child, rename them and take them home as a slave. So many things wrong. Yeah. Of course. And, yeah. you know. Then what apparently was the custom at the time is that you would give your enslaved people the same last name as you, hmm. which I find a little gross considering how most slavery worked. Because then it's like you own them, but you're like trying to consider them like part of your family or something. Yeah. It just feels really mm-hmm. nasty. Anyway, so they gave her their last name and then... Their 18-year-old daughter, Mary, was like her tutor and taught her how to read and write. And then apparently their son, Nathaniel, also tutored her. And it surprises me. But yeah. I guess, so like, that's good. That's cool. This is where it gets weird. So John Wheatley was like known as progressive. And so they gave her like an unprecedented education. It was uncommon for even any woman of race at any mm-hmm. time, let alone an enslaved black woman. But by the age of 12, she was reading Greek and Latin, reading Greek and Latin classics in their original languages, as well as difficult passages from the Bible. And at age 14, she wrote her first poem to the University of Cambridge or Harvard in New England. Wow. Yes. And then after they recognized that she was capable of this, they supported her education and left household labor to all of their other domestic enslaved workers. Okay. But then they would exhibit her abilities to friends and family. And then she began writing more poetry. So there's like some exploitation going on here. It was like a party trick. Yeah. They're like, look at our slave. She knows how to read and write and recite poetry. Like it, Mm -hmm. it's cool that they educated her, but I don't know. The whole thing makes me feel very weird. So in 1773, when she was 20, she accompanied Nathaniel Wheatley to London In part for her health, she suffered from chronic asthma, but also because Susanna believed that Phyllis would have a better chance of publishing her book of poems there rather than in the American colonies, which, Mm. fair, it makes sense that they were trying to get it there. She had an audience with Frederick Bull, who was like the Lord Mayor of London and then other members of British society. Mm. She actually had an audience with King George III, but she did end up returning to Boston before it could take place. The Countess of Hustington became really interested in her talent and actually subsidized the publication of her volume of poems, which appeared in London in the summer of 1773. And they actually never met each other, but she paid for the whole thing. Wow. So after her book was published by November of 1773, they actually, it's called manumitted, which basically they released her from slavery. Oh. Mm-hmm. Or set free, but 
I think she did stay there for a while. I don't know. Susanna Wheatley died in the spring of 1774, and then John died only four years later. Mm-hmm. And shortly after, Phyllis did meet and marry a man named John Peters, who was an impoverished but free black grocer. And, of course, they lived in poverty because hard, hard life. And two of their babies actually passed away. But John, her husband, was unable to provide. And so he was imprisoned for debt in 1784. And then her infant son was really sick. And so she became a scullery maid at a boarding house, which was work that notably she had never done before. Yeah. And she developed pneumonia due to just like the bad conditions and poverty and ended up passing away in 1784 in December at only the age of 31 in childbirth, like giving birth to her daughter who died the same day as her. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So very short, very hard life. Obviously, there's a lot of other things we're going to talk about now. I am. Okay. I was going to say, what? Episode over? Uh, Yes. And that's a 20-minute episode and we're done. No, no. We're going to talk about like her writings and poetry and everything else. So throughout her life, obviously, she wrote some poems. But one other thing she did is she wrote a letter to Reverend Samson Calm, commending him on his ideas and beliefs, stating that enslaved people should be given their natural born rights in America. Agree. And Wheatley also exchanged letters with British philanthropist John Thornton who discussed Wheatley and her poetry in correspondence with John Newton. She was also able to express her thoughts, comments, and concerns to others throughout letters throughout her life. She also had a poem entitled to His Excellency George Washington, who was the then military general, to put into perspective what time period we're in here. Yeah. uh (laughs) And the following year, he invited her to visit him at his headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which she did in March. So She met George Washington before he was president. And then Thomas Paine republished the poem in the Pennsylvania Gazette in April of that same year. Wow. In 1779, after her first volume of poems had come, she issued a proposal for a second volume of poems, but she was unable to publish it because she had lost her patrons after her emancipation. Like, they didn't want to publish the poems of a freed woman. Really sad because it's like, and like you said, it, there was definitely like an exploitive aspect to that. And so it's yeah. like, it almost became less of a party trick where it's less of, look at this person that I own and look at what they can do. It's not as cool now. Yeah. It's gross. It is gross. And it's hard too because one of the biggest problems I have with the family is that they didn't really set her up for success in any way. Yeah. Like they gave her this incredible education and like opportunities to publish. But then they were like, okay, now you're free to go and live your life. Mm-hmm. And it's like there was no place in society for her. And I mean that in like a horrible way. Like obviously there should have been. But like yeah. she's a super, super educated freed slave. Or like freed mm-hmm. living in the 1700s American colonies. Yeah. What opportunity is she going to have? They're not going to let her go be a, a governess or a teacher mm-hmm. and actually, or even, even publish she could a book. very much be a governess yeah. and a teacher. And, yeah, like they said, she was so more tragic. educated than most white women even were at the time. So it's just a, a really messy situation. Like I said, she wasn't able to publish her second volume of poetry. Mm-hmm. And this is also because they wanted you to gain subscriptions for guaranteed sales beforehand if you didn't have a patron providing. 
Oh. And also at the time was the American Revolutionary War, which... Unfortunately, probably not the most ideal time to try and create art and get people to pay for it. Yeah. Just not great. Most of her poems that were going to be included were later published in like pamphlets and newspapers like later on in some mm-hmm. way. So we, I think we have quite a few of them, but just really sad. There's some other things that she wrote that was really notable. In 1768, she wrote to the king's most excellent majesty and what she praised King George III for repealing the Stamp Act, which mm. we talked about in school. Yeah, but when discussing – the idea of freedom, she was able to subtly raise the idea of freedom to enslaved subjects of the king as well. And she said, May George, beloved by all the nations around, live with heaven's choices, constant blessings crowned. Great God direct and guard him from on high and from his head let every evil fly. And may each climb with equal gladness see a monarch smile can set his subjects free. Wow. And then, of course, she wrote poems about the American Revolution as well, expressing ideas of the rebellious colonists as they fought against the monarchy of England, which continued. She had a lot of like Christian themes in her poetry too, which I think was based on the religion that she was in. Yeah. Yeah. Like they taught her from the Bible and stuff. One thing that's interesting is that she didn't really write about her own life in her poems very often. She would focus on religious, classical, or abstract themes, or even like patriotic or political. Mm -hmm. There is one that she wrote about journeying from Africa to America, and I feel like it raises an interesting view of like how she viewed the whole thing. It said, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there is a God and there is a Savior too, and once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye, their color is a di- diabolical dye. Remember Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. So she viewed it as being saved. Yeah. But that's what she was taught from the time she was eight years old. So I can't say, really put that at her. No, of course. But it's interesting because like you don't know what situation she came from. And I guess like from one perspective, like cool, she was educated. One other thing that was crazy is that a lot of colonists didn't believe that an African slave was writing excellent poetry. And so she actually had to go to court and defend the authorship of her poetry. I don't know what all it involved, but like they said she was examined by a group of Boston luminaries. And they concluded that she had written the poems ascribed to her and signed an attestation which was included in the preface of her book of collected works. So it was like all of these prominent, I think it was, oh yeah, there's a few names we'll know here. John Irving, Reverend Charles Chauncey, John Hancock, Thomas Hutchinson, and the governor of Massachusetts and his lieutenant governor. So they all signed this thing being like, hey, these were actually written. That's crazy. Yeah, because they like couldn't believe. They couldn't believe it. <gasps> they Whoa. literally, I think it shines light on how bad racism was. Like, they literally thought they were, like, a different species. Like, they didn't think they were capable of, like, creation or thought or like being education. Education, yeah. Yeah, like, literally nothing. And it's just ridiculous. So yeah, they had to include this whole thing. And one thing that was interesting is publishers in Boston had declined to publish it because of all of this. Wow. Yeah. But the influential people in London all did. They actually did comment on her book when it got published in the London magazine 
And they published her poem, Hymn to the Morning, as a specimen of her work. And the quote that they said with it is, these poems display no astonishing power of genius, but when we consider them as the productions of a young, untutored African who... She was guy. She was very tutored. She learned Latin and Greek, but okay. Who wrote them after six months casual study of the English language? I think that's a little exaggerated. And of writing, she didn't write them when she was nine. We cannot express our admiration of talents so vigorous and lively. I'm also realizing too, like she didn't get any money from this. It's not like she got her cut from royalties of the poetry book. I don't think so. I'm imagining it all went to the family. Yeah, because I guess then she probably wouldn't have been in poverty. Wow. Yeah, and then wouldn't it have been nice if they would have let her publish her second book? Because then she probably could have provided for her family instead of her husband ending up in debtor's prison and Mm -hmm. her dying of pneumonia. Just some interesting thoughts. (laughs) There was an ode written to Wheatley. It's called An Address to Miss Phyllis Wheatley by the African-American poet Jupiter Hammond in 1778. Mm. His master, Lloyd, had temporarily moved with his slaves to Hartford, Connecticut during the Revolutionary War. And Hammond thought that Wheatley had succumbed to what he believed were pagan influences in her writing. And so it was like this address that had 21 rhyming quatrains, each accompanied by a related Bible verse that he thought would compel her to return to a Christian path in life. Wow. I'm very intrigued. Yeah. (laughs) The rest of what prompted this. I know. I'm like, I don't think she had pagan writings, but okay, sir. And then... In 1838, a Boston-based publisher and abolitionist, Isaac Knapp, published a collection of her poetry, along with that of an enslaved North Carolinian poet, George Moses Horton, under the title Memoir and Poems of Phyllis Wheatley, a Native African and Slave, also poems by a slave. Wheatley's memoir was early published earlier published in 1834 by G.O.W. Light, but did not include any poems by Horton. So mm. there is like more coming out after she passed away for a little bit. He, Thomas Jefferson also (laughs) was unwilling to acknowledge the value of her work or the work of any black poet in his state notes on the state of Virginia Mm -hmm. and wrote like this weird paragraph about how basically she couldn't produce poetry. Guys, (laughs) get it. I'm like, why did you feel the need to do this? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just so weird. She's among the blacks is misery enough, God knows, but no poetry. I think, like, what a way to deny someone's humanity Mm -hmm. is to say that they can't create art because I feel art is obviously such a key part of humanity. Yeah. I guess I never really had, like, thought of that. And because I guess I was even thinking, I'm like, oh, I was surprised that an abolitionist would make the effort to publish a thing of poetry where it's, oh, of all the things you could do and you're going to put out a book of poetry, you might think, oh, what's that going to do? But then actually, I feel like that's such an important thing you can do, right? To say, no, these people are creating art and they are like, (laughs) like they need our help. And it's such an interesting thing. It's like to and tragic way to deny humanity by saying, no, they actually can't create art that's worth celebrating or worth noticing, like worth even acknowledging and calling poetry and calling art. I know. And a way to degrade someone. He like literally said they're too miserable enough to like create poetry. That's interesting. That's kind too. of on you, buddy. Yeah. I'm like, then do something about it, sir. Okay. So, some other things. Wheatley obviously believed throughout her whole life that the power of poetry was immeasurable. 
Shields later noted that her poetry did not simply reflect the literature she read, but was based on her ideas and beliefs. Wheatley had more in mind than simple conformity. It will be shown later that her allusions to the sun god and the goddess of the moon, always appearing as they do here, were in close association with her quest for poetic inspiration and are of central importance to her. So she did write about like solar worship and lunar worship, which I think that might be why the guy thought they were pagan. There it is. But that's actually one of the only things that she retained from her African culture. So I actually think it's beautiful that it pops up a lot. Three of her like primary elements were Christianity, classism, and then they have a really fancy name for it, but like the solar lunar worship. Mm. And what's interesting about it, though, is that like she uses a lot of different words for the sun, like Aurora, Apollo, Phoebus, Sol. And then he thinks that it also is like it's connecting her African history that she left behind, but also like the sun can be a symbol for Christ. Oh, yeah. Because like sun. And Mm -hmm. so she was like creating this bridge between the religion that she remembers bits and pieces of and then the religion that she learned because she was she was literally eight years old yeah how many I memories doubt. do you actually keep yeah yeah she probably only remembered the like you would remember the, the gods god. like yeah. they would be the sun god the moon god and then you learn that there's literally the son of god and you're like oh okay it makes sense <laughs> like, that you would connect that yeah. to what you remember growing up for sure exactly so she used it a lot as a double reference to christ which is why it wasn't really pagan in any way but like she could make a pagan but if also if it was, yeah. I guess that one guy wouldn't like it, but... <laughs> but she could do whatever she wants. Yeah. And then also she would refute, refer to the, I think it's the sun as well as like heavenly muse and the idea of a Christian deity being the one to inspire her. The main thing that Shields argues set her apart from a lot of her other contemporaries is the classism that she would allude to within her work. This is like her reference to all of the classics that she read. Like she would use reference to, I'm not going to be able to say this, Messianans, Gaius Messianus, some Italian philosopher, political advisor to Octavian, but he was a poet in the Augustan era along with Mm -hmm. Horace and Virgil. If that rings any bells for anyone, if you studied ancient Roman poetry. But she would use like a lot of references to his writings to depict the relationship between her and her patrons, as well as referring to Achilles and Patroclus, like Homer and Virgil, and then also indicating the complexity of her relationship with classical texts by pointing to Terence as an ancestor for her works, which I'm guessing is another poet. Some scholars have argued that her allusions to classical material are based on the reading of other neoclassical poetry like Alexander Pope, but they demonstrated that her engagement in Latin texts and the familiarity that she had with them meant that she was like a lot more educated than they thought. So there's even people that are like, oh, no, she read like later contemporary vision, like people who wrote about the people that she was writing about. And then, yeah. no, she actually was reading the original. That. Yes. Yeah. Which it was like a different kind of education that they didn't expect her to have. Because like mm-hmm. I said, it was very rare for even white people to have at the time. So it was just like interesting how deep kind of her scholarship into some of those subjects went. When it's we don't even learn that now. It's not like a thing that is in major educational curriculum. One thing that she's been critiqued for the most and then I actually found 
really sad is that a lot of scholars from the 1960s to the present have been critiquing her writing because it doesn't really ever identify her as like a black enslaved person. Like it lacks that personal identity. And they think that it's this a prime example of what they call Uncle Tom syndrome. Mm. And I'll get into what that is a little bit. But it showed that she had a lack of awareness of her condition of enslavement and how that was common among some descendants of the Africans in the Americas mm. based on like different situations. Yeah. Because you think about like how she was growing up and it's just really different. Mm. So Uncle Tom syndrome is like this theory in psychology which it's basically a coping skill. So individuals use passivity and submissiveness when they're confronted with a threat where they, it leads them to subservient behavior and appeasement while concealing their true thoughts and feelings. I think that's fair. Like you think about the fact that she's a terrified eight-year-old being stolen yeah. from home and then thrown in this random family. Like you would become really passive and submissive in order to not have anything happen yeah, to you. It's a survival technique. Yeah. And obviously, it comes from Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, where the African-American slave Tom is beaten to death for refusing to betray the whereabouts of two other slaves. And in the original novel, Uncle Tom is a heroic character who's loyal to the slaves in hiding. But the original producers of the stage version of the story grossly distorted the character into a man who would sell out his own race to curry favor with the white people. I actually didn't know that yeah i just so. assume that the original story was telling that tale no ah, wow so they like changed the story completely and the idea was to make him more favorable to white audiences of the late 1850s Ooh, and so okay. uncle tom syndrome is referring to that version not got the it not the actual original yeah thing that it was based on huh yeah, it's the idea of selling out your own race to curry favor with mm -hmm. those who hold authority over you. And it's also used to like a term for people, African-Americans who give up or hide their ethnic outlook traits and practices in order to be accepted into the mainstream. So that's the situation. They also use it for people who would try to appear more docile, more non-assertive, more happy-go-lucky, especially during slavery in order to avoid retaliation and for self-preservation, which when you're in that kind of situation, yeah, don't really blame them. Blame. I'd probably do the same thing. No, you're right. <laughs> it's tragic, but it's coping skills. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot about that. And she's been accused of having that as well. They took interest in her in young age because she was timid and submissive and was eight. Was and, then, and a child. So. Yes. And so using this to their advantage, the Wheatley family was able to mold and shape her into a person of their liking, which is true. They were completely able to mold her entire thought process. Mm -hmm. Like she was a child. Like, yeah. It's not that hard. In a new place with people yeah. she doesn't know. So Exactly. Like completely separated from anything familiar. And so, of course, they were able to mold her and shape her into whatever they wanted. They also separated her from the other slaves in the home, and she was prevented mm -hmm. from doing anything other than light housework. Like to talk about when she became a scullery maid, it was the first time she'd ever done work like that. And this prevented her from ever becoming a threat to the Wheatley family or other people of the white community because she was well-educated but not 
ever allowed to actually be part of either community. Oh, so it's, yeah, she was isolated on all sides, essentially. Yeah. Oh, you don't get to be with the other African-American slaves. Like with the other slaves. Yeah. And and we're going to tutor you and educate you. And you're only allowed to attend our white social events, but you don't get to actually. You're not actually a part of this. Yes. So that's where it's kind of speculation. Like we know most of that is true. Like she was attending white social events. She was separated. Mm -hmm. She didn't learn how to do a lot of housework. We don't know entirely what their motivations behind it were or anything, but Mm -hmm. it does look really suspect. Yeah. She also wrote a biography called A White Woman's Memoir, which has been subject to investigation. In 2020, very recently, American poet Jefferts published her The Age of Phyllis, which was based on the understanding that Margarita Matilda Odell's account of Wheatley's life portrayed Wheatley inaccurately which was the I White Woman's memoir. And they think that she was viewed more as like the character of a sentimental novel rather than a realistic portrait of her. If you think about it, I feel like a lot of people probably really romanticized her life. Yeah, I could see that. Especially during the whole idealization time period of slavery where they're like, look at her. She came over and they tutored her and she just did light housework and then wrote all of these poems and She was so educated. Isn't this an amazing thing that happened? Yeah, and be like, she had such a good life. So I think that's... Wait, who wrote the biography originally? The biography, I think, was written by Margareta Matilda O'Dell. Margareta Matilda O'Dell was a white woman who claimed to be a collateral descendant of Susanna Wheatley. I don't know what a collateral descendant is. Obviously not direct, but... (laughs) I guess not. Interesting. Anyway, she had published the biography, and then later they're like, eh, probably not true. (laughs) So if you want to find a more accurate one, go look for Jeffer's book that was published in 2020 called The Age of Phyllis. And I think that will be more accurate. So what her legacy is in all of this, because this is not like a great (laughs) story. (laughs) And I didn't want it to be such a downer. So I kind of want to focus on the fact what's really cool about this story is that with her publication in 1773 of her book of poems on various subjects, she not only became the most famous African-American on the face of the earth, or I guess African, depending on how you look at it, but (laughs) she also proved that black people could write poetry, like you Mm -hmm. said. Like Mm -hmm. they allowed some open-mindedness in a way that hadn't been there before. Yeah. I wish it would have prompted more social change earlier on in our colonial history. That would have been really great. But there even, you know, it could have just been one domino. Yeah, exactly. Like even if it changed a few minds. Effects. Mm -hmm. So one quote about it was John Paul Jones, who was an officer, asked a fellow officer to deliver some of his personal writings to Phyllis, the African favor of the nine muses and Apollo. And she was honored by many of America's founding fathers, including George Washington, who wrote to her after she wrote a poem in his honor, even saying the style and manner of your poetry exhibit a striking proof of your great poetical talents. Like, she was really fundamental to the genre of African-American literature. She's Mm -hmm. honored, of course, as the first African-American woman to publish a book of poetry and the first to make a living from her writing, even though... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's an asterisk by that. Yeah, Yeah. we don't know where the money went, but... Yeah, but she did publish it and profit off of it. 
In 2002, the scholar Sante even listed her as one of the 100 greatest African-Americans. And she's featured along with Abigail Adams and Lucy Stone in the Boston Women's Memorial, which I think is really cool. It's this sculpture on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, Massachusetts. The Robert Morris University named the new building for their School of Communications and Information Sciences after her. And Wheatley Hall at UMass Boston is also named for her. So, yeah, there's been a lot of commemoration for her and her work, especially in Boston. There's a Phyllis Mm -hmm. Wheatley High School. There's like all of the schools, an elementary school. Mm -hmm. And on July 16th, 2019, at the London site where they published her first book, there now is a commemorative plaque honoring Mm -hmm. her as well. Cool. Like, I do like to think of it as, like you said, that first bit of the domino effect, the first recognized African-American poet. Like, Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. That's really memorable. And I thought it was super interesting to look at things like the Uncle Tom's Cabin and like having to go before a court Mm -hmm. of people to prove that you're the author of your own work because they don't think you're capable of it. And also just the weird nuance of I think the Wheatleys thought they were doing such a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if maybe they were just really setting her up for a complete disaster in a lot of ways, too. In some ways. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like you said, you pointed out like the unfortunately, the world was not built for her Mm -hmm. afterwards. No. And I think the fact that they didn't set up a way for her to be helped afterwards, too, is telling. Very you know? telling. And even to like their children. I'm like, those children. They were still alive. Her. Yeah. It's very tragic that she really just fell to the wayside like that. I and know. I think it shows that the consideration wasn't fully mm-hmm. there. Like, I think they were like, yeah. oh, charity. Like, we'll do a good thing. But then there wasn't any like actual thought about, oh, but is this help? actually helpful is this sustainable is this actually going to and are we gonna do like help something? see this through so that yeah yeah i like you've seen saltburn <laughs> i wow i literally <laughs> was just thinking about that yeah, yeah if you haven't seen saltburn it's like this story about this kid at oxford who goes and stays with this really wealthy family for the summer because they think that he's like impoverished Mm-hmm. and has drug addict parents and everything like this tragedy charity case but the whole idea is that it's not the first time they've done it they've done it multiple times like they always let their son adopt these like charity cases for the summer mm-hmm. and, and then like so interested by it and so they like, like make they them tell them. yeah mm-hmm. like their tragic story over and over again and throw parties and expose them to all of this like higher mm-hmm. stuff be like, wow, look at what we can do for you. Yeah. But then they basically, Mm -hmm. they just kick them out at the end of the time. They're like, okay, bye. Yep. And that's it. So it reminds me a lot of that where it's, oh, like we're doing. We're doing a good thing for you, gracing you with our life and our lifestyle and everything. Yeah. In reality, it's like, you're not doing anything for them at all. It's like, you get to be here and we'll feed you fancy dinners and here, wear this nice suit and we'll We'll do all these things for you. And then it's, oh, but now we're bored of you. Get out. Get out. I mean, the parents did pass away, but still, it's just, I don't know. I think there was no consideration given for her life after they were like, oh, I guess we'll give you your freedom. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Thank you. But. (laughs) Yeah. 
And I think it also it really does shine light on the life of freed slaves, too, mm-hmm. in that time period. Like, they didn't have any rights. So yeah. it's like you were freed, but what were you going to do? It was only the lowest of the low jobs available. And even then it was just complete poverty until you eventually died. It's just so upsetting in so many ways. You're right. It's such a, it's like a very, it's a layered story. Because like on Mm -hmm. the surface, of course, it's an incredible thing. And what she was able to achieve is amazing. But it's, yeah, you peel back some layers and it's, huh, got to notice that. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I ended up choosing her is I couldn't stop thinking about this whole dynamic of like, Mm -hmm first eight-year-old sold by a tribe leader on a slave ship doesn't even get to keep any semblance of her name or identity other than bits and pieces she can remember. Mm-hmm. And then not only is she like criticized by the white community because they don't think she can do it, is that later on now they're like, she's criticized by the black community because they're like, she didn't actually bring to light any issues with being. Yes. Yeah. And it's, I don't think... I don't think she could. It yeah, I know you're right. Like, yeah. she, from the time she was eight, there's a lot of learning that happens. Yep. So it's like necessity. expectations were just really high for her and mm-hmm. the follow through just wasn't really there. Bad. But now, if anyone ever asks you who the first, mm-hmm. I think, like, African-American poet was, it's her. It's Phyllis? Yep. Wow. It's Phyllis, at least in America, like African-American. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. But it's an important tell. Important, it's still an important story, of course. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm happy to know it. Again, it's always like at the end of a sad story with these episodes. It's like, wow. Yay. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily feel enthused and happy, but it's important. I know. Yeah. It's hard. I feel like there's always like triumphs and tragedies of every story we cover and sometimes Mm -hmm. they end on a happier note and then they lived out a long life of luxury and wealth and then other times it's and they did not get what they deserved yep and died in poverty and obscurity and at only 31 Mm -hmm. but i think it's also like important that we're championing them like i'm glad that things are still being written about her like even as just three years four years ago now 2020? Gosh, Mm -hmm. that year was weird. (laughs) Like it went on for way too long. But yeah, like even that recently and then able to continue to bring her name up and make sure that we don't forget who she is. Like she should be in textbooks. Absolutely. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. she met George Washington. I feel like we heard about everyone who met George Washington. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today, listeners, Mm -hmm. for this story, for learning about her. And now we all know this story. Before we end the episode, we're going to do our artist spotlights because we love shouting out artists that we're finding on Instagram, championing them. So yeah, we do this every week at the very end of our episodes now. I can start with mine. That's cool. Yeah, go for it. So in the, what's it, in the celebration of this, for the Sarah J. Maskerlies, we're taking a diverging turn here. I don't know if that's how you'd say that. Doesn't matter. Anyways, I'm shouting out a shop. It's just page.theshop. And it is, the bio is book merch for my girls, gays, and theys. And it is, it really is. It's just book merch, essentially. Really, it's if you have a Kindle, it's the cutest Kindle cases ever. It makes me want to buy a Kindle just so I can have a case from her because I think they are very cute. These are way cute. Uh Uh-huh. I love the designs. She has like a house of mass 
I think it's mass is how you say it, like t-shirt that is so cute. And a lot of her merch is designed for, it's got little nuggets mm. for them. But anyways, actually, I really absolutely adore it so much. I love her, I love her style. It's a really cool shop. So if you're a reader, hello, you have a Kindle, especially the designs Seriously. are great. And I would just absolutely recommend checking them out. So page dot the shop. Love that. I remember you sending me that shirt and I was like, it mm-hmm. is very cool. Yep. The person I want to shout out is Kelly Girardi. Have you seen her popping up on our feed? Maybe. I followed her a while ago because I didn't want to lose her page. Uh-huh. She's an astronaut and an author. And she, okay, she had a super viral video where she wore friendship bracelets into space. I don't think see I that? saw that. It seems like it should have shown up on my I page. No, she's like a huge Swifty. I feel like it would have popped up on your page. They, she went up into space. I don't remember what it was for. That is ironic because at the beginning of this episode, we both were like, we'll never, could never do that. I know. <laughs> That's true. I even forgot that we yeah. brought that up. Yeah. But yeah, she wore, oh, she said, when you're flying to space in the year of the era's tour, and then she had two full wrists and everyone gave her friendship bracelets for her launch so that they could trade with her after so that their friendship bracelets had been in space. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. I'm a fan. I would want a friendship bracelet that went to space. I don't exactly. need to. But that's cool. So that was like the thing that she did with all of her friends is they gave her all of these bracelets and it said stuff that was relevant to like her or like referencing like stars or something, you know, from mm-hmm. Taylor Swift songs. And then she got to obviously go to space. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then came back down and she's been posting stuff with like her daughter and about her book that she wrote. And she's just the cutest. Like people would say stuff like she gets a lot of hate comments, which I really hate. Oh, they're dumb. Oh, here we go. So she gets comments like. Oh, she was thanking her mom for helping with childcare so that she could pursue her goals to go to space. Oh, I already know where this is going. And then people were like, wow, it's so dumb that you chose your career over your child and like all this stuff. That's so cool that her, they're, ah, my brain's circuiting. Sorry, that just pissed me off. (laughs) And then she talked about the fact that she was like, it's no wonder that we live in a world where less than a hundred women have ever been in space. It's like, it's because of stuff like this. Like, they don't send women to space. Like, hardly ever. Like, very few women have been in space. It's like that funny story of, like, when they were and they were, like, going to pack tampons. And, like, how many should we give you? And And they gave her, they were like, is 100 tampons going to be enough? (laughs) No, she literally, she made, she commented on that, too, because she made a video joking about packing 100 tampons for her space flight. And then she ended up getting her period a week early right before the flight and actually had to talk to them about bringing tampons into space. <laughs> I bet they didn't pack her 100. No, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> They're like, oh, we think you're going to need 100 tampons. And it was like, for what, a month or something? It might have even been shorter. I don't personally go through 100 tampons, I don't think, in a year. So. No. So she just gets a lot of stuff like that. and. It's ridiculous. And like she's trying to have a baby right now and people will like comment things about you probably messed up 
your reproductive system by flying into space and like all of this crap. But also, this is a really random thing that I was curious about. Apparently, 676 people have journeyed to space by the U.S. definition, according to the Space Foundation. So there you go. And less than 100 women. Wow. Yep. Then also a lot of people. Her and the other women who went to space were invited to the White House, and so they got to dress up. And they wore, like, these really fun, like, space-themed outfits that had, like, sequins and sparkles all over them and everything. And they're like, how fun is it? They're like, I'm wearing a sequin for every time I got told that this isn't a fashion show. Because, like, women in STEM get a lot of crap for dressing nice, too. That's so boring. What, like, a boring, insufferable person you have to be to comment that on right? the video. I just... Ugh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, like, I just think she's so inspiring. And the relationship she has with her daughter, like, she has a video of her running up to her daughter after she got out of the spaceship and everything. And, like, it's just so sweet and so inspiring. And I think the book she wrote was about her daughter... I love her. Luna Muna Space Cafe. Luna Muna Space Cafe? Yeah. Okay, that's amazing. And her daughter's name is Delta, which so cute and space-themed. That's a cute name. Yeah. Actually, I've never heard that, but I actually, I like that. It's adorable. So I just think she's so inspiring. I love seeing all of her stuff pop up. And I just think, like, how cool that she gets to tell her daughter and like her future children like i was one of the first however many women in space so i think it's cute she also did i'm talking way too much about her but she also did this whole i'm, I'm here for it <laughs> like it's the so cute yeah. Yeah. she also did this whole like she bought american girl released like a space astronaut collection amazing and it was like years before she ever even got pregnant but she bought everything from the collection because she was like training to be an astronaut and she knew that she would want to give it to her future daughter and so she was waiting all of these years for her daughter to get old enough and so her daughter finally asked for an american girl doll for christmas and she was like okay and she got her she unwrapped and set up everything and it was like the little rover and this and like all these things that were like from years ago that american girl doll had sold and she was like, it's going to mean even more because she's seen photos of me on this or like using this and talking about like the prepackaged food and everything. So I just it's so cute and wholesome and lovely. And I just love that we're living in a year where someone's live wearing friendship bracelets to space. Like, I'm so here for it. <laughs> me too. That just brought yep. me a lot of joy. Yep. So, yeah. Follow Thank her. Thank you Kelly for sharing with me. Thank you for bringing her into my life now. (laughs) Of course. Um, Thank you for joining us, listeners. We are back every single week with more talks about women from history, pop culture, lost heroes that deserve some recognition. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram as well, where we provide Mm -hmm. visual components, obviously, to everything that we cover. You can look at the pictures that people are covering. We'll a lot of times share their artwork as well. Mm -hmm. And we'll be back next Monday. Yes, and don't forget to rate and review. Love you. Love Bye you guys. so much. Bye. <laughs> hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz. 
and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.